Good morning, Sanctuary. <clears throat> My name is Edrin, one of the pastors here. Um, especially to all of you who are here for the first time, we want to take another moment and welcome you to the Sanctuary. Uh, we appreciate you being with us today and allowing us to uh, serve you and to be in worship with you this morning. Um, there are a number of great churches around the Twin Cities, and we are grateful, uh, though, that you chose to be with us today. So whatever it was that brought you here, um, a lost bet or um, <laughs> whatever it was, we're, we're grateful that you're with us, uh, and we pray that the service will be a blessing to you. Can we thank our sister Daphne again for being with us today in worship and sharing? We are truly grateful um, for our connection to the larger body of Christ, um, not just around our denomination, but around the world. And so thank you uh, for sharing your gifts and being with us today. Um, I want to take a moment just to remind you all, uh, we've been talking for a couple weeks now about a stewardship form, uh, a form that will help us to get a sense of our commitments and our points of engagement here at Sanctuary in 2019. That form was emailed out uh, last, last week. Um, it also is available in paper form and on our website. And so we encourage you to uh, find that form. If you have questions about it, stop by the desk and ask Amy for more information about it. We would love for you to uh, be prepared on the 26th of January, the fourth Sunday of this month, uh, for us to, to together say, here's our commitment to uh, sanctuary this year. And we want to pray a sort of prayer of consecration over this year um, as we begin in ministry together. Um, the second thing I want to mention this morning, I, we are in the midst of um, a government shutdown, a federal government shutdown, the, lar- the longest in American history. Um, and we as a church have a commitment to not just celebrate with you the, the good times in your life, but also to journey with you to, through the more difficult times. And so if we have members who are affected by this government shutdown, the pastors would like to know who you are so that we might be first praying for you, but also to just practically help you through this time. And so if, if you will uh, get in contact with myself, Pastor Mike, Pastor Rose, or stop by the desk and let Amy know, we'd love to journey with, through, through, uh, with you through this time. So let's pray this morning um, for those, of course, who are impacted by the shutdown, but also for our nation as a whole. We want to pray for uh, believers around the world, many who are not free to gather in public and worship the way we are. Uh, we want to pray for this community of North Minneapolis that we feel called to. But there are many friends and loved ones that you know uh, who are in need of prayer. And so we would ask you to now to just be thinking about them and even your own needs. All of us need God to show up in some meaningful way in our life right now. And so let's pray together as we jump into uh, this message. Father, we, we thank you that you love us with an everlasting love. And we're grateful that you have told us that we are free to call out to you in prayer. God, we are believing and we know by faith that when we pray, you hear us and you are faithful to respond. And so, God, we ask right now that you would just hear our prayers, that you would Search our hearts and know our deepest needs and desires, our fears, our concerns, that you would minister to us. We pray, God, that this word this morning would be an encouragement to our church 
an encouragement to each and every individual and family that calls sanctuary home. We ask, God, that we would continue to be salt and light in this community, that we would love North Minneapolis deeply and see ourselves as an intricate part of the fabric of this community. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are serving in other organizations in this community who are also doing the work of bringing about your shalom, your peace, restoring what's broken, lifting up what's beautiful, and serving your people. So we thank you that we get to be a part of that work as well. So bless us now as we jump into this word in Jesus' name. Amen. We are today kicking off a new series called Beautiful Outlaw. Beautiful Outlaw is based on a book by John Eldridge that's available uh, for sale at the the welcome desk this morning, but also available online, um, Kindle and Amazon and other sources. You can buy that. A a number of our groups will be studying this book together. And if you have not connected to a group in the past, this is a great opportunity for you to get the book and just gather a couple friends and meet together over the course of the series uh, to try out what it is like to be a part of a group that's studying together. It will change your life. It's transformational as you get to know people more deeply and get to engage with the sermon um, every week. For our brothers and sisters who follow the Christian calendar closely, we are currently in the season of Epiphany. Epiphany. The basic understanding of Epiphany is that season that stretches between Advent, those four Sundays that lead up to Christmas, and Lent, that 40-day period of leading up to Resurrection Sunday. So we find ourselves right now in the season of Epiphany. And depending on your Christian tradition, Epiphany can be a one-day event, or it can be as much as a 38-day season. By definition, an epiphany is something, a surprising encounter which grabs our attention. It's a season or a moment when something extraordinary is discovered in a seemingly ordinary situation. Epiphany is a spiritual aha moment. It's a time of appearances, a time of gaining insights, a time of seeing something, some things, or someone that you had been previously unable or unwilling to see. And this morning, as we begin this new series called Beautiful Outlaw, I want to invite you to be open to this spirit of epiphany. Rather than seeing something, I want to invite you to see someone and see them differently. The invitation throughout this entire series is for us as a church to see Jesus in a new way. In the book Beautiful Outlaw, John Eldridge tells the story of a man who built a house for himself to reside in. One day, after living there for some time, the man decides he was only going to speak to people through his kitchen window. From that day forward, He required anyone who wanted to talk to him to come to his window, his kitchen window, line up, and wait their turn. For some strange reason, his friends went along with it and decided to let him do this. Soon, this brother became so enthusiastic about this way of communication, he boarded up all the doors of his house. He boarded up all the other windows of his house. He even closed in the chimney. He made plans to spend the rest of his life at his kitchen window living this way. Eventually, 
he came to the conclusion that this was the human way to communicate. In fact, he said it was the only way that humans were ever meant to communicate. He wrote a book about it called Kitchen Window Communication. I doubt if anybody actually bought the book. But eventually this brother died, but not before he established a scholarship foundation in his own honor so that his money could be used to teach future generations about kitchen window communication. It's pretty easy for any of us to do what this brother did. That is to get locked into a certain experience, have it consume us, and live our lives only that way. This feels like something we do with Jesus all the time. We have a certain experience of Jesus, and we get used to that experience and that understanding of Jesus, and it becomes for us the only way of experiencing Jesus. It becomes our kitchen window. And so when we hear about or see someone experience Jesus a different way, we fall into judgment and comparison. We compare and judge other people with our way of experiencing Jesus right in the center. We judge them based on how closely their experience of Jesus comes to ours. Now, this has been especially true for those of us who have experienced historical power and privilege in the world. You you learned over time that what you know is normal and everything else is off. How off is it? It's off by the degree of how closely it relates to what you know. And so if if it sort of looks like what you know, it's cool. But if it doesn't, it's off. Here's the other side of what that looks like. There are people who have historically been denied privilege and power in our society, and they have certain ways of experiencing Jesus. But they are slowly molded and changed to fit into the mold of the majority culture. Here's what that might look like in a church like ours. You may have come in today wanting to clap and sway, (laughs) but you didn't see anybody else doing that. And so you said, hey, I'm just going to sit here and do what everybody else is doing. You might have wanted to come in today and say amen, but you didn't hear anybody else saying that. And so you said, I'm going to sit here and keep my mouth closed. Friends, before you know it, this will become your way of experiencing Jesus. And even though you know with all of your heart that there is so much more to experiencing Jesus, even if you know that there is something far richer, more deeper, something that impacts every part of your body, not just your brain, when it comes to Jesus, you will let the majority, change your experience of Jesus. And if you're not careful, one day you'll look up on your wall and there'll be a certificate that says, Proud Graduate of Kitchen Window University. In the book, Beautiful Outlaw, John Eldridge says this, Our experience of Jesus is limited most often by the limits that we place on Jesus. But there's hope. There is great hope for us. There is great hope for our church. There is great hope for the world. And I believe this series will help us to get to that hope. 
Here's the reality. Jesus is alive. Jesus is exponentially more beautiful than we have ever known him to be. There is so much more to see and experience of Jesus. Can you say more? There is so much more. The subtitle of this book is Experiencing the Playful, Disruptive, Extravagant Personality of Jesus. This is the kind of Jesus we're going to discover who would get in trouble if he grew up in a church like mine. This is the Jesus who would tear up the hymn books, crawl under the pews, make fun of the old people. But this is the Jesus that I want us to know and love because this Jesus is the kind of Jesus we can take into the world. Somewhere along the line, we have begun to believe that Jesus is always quiet and pensive and aloof. And he walked around the dusty roads of Jerusalem and Palestine, and his robe never got dirty. He would always throw out these quotes that nobody really understood. I believe there's so much more to Jesus. And that's the Jesus that I want us to discover today. In this series, we want to invite you to discover the dynamic, multidimensional personality of Jesus. There's more to Jesus And the scriptures provide us a robust portrait of who Jesus is, and that's what we're going to delve into over the course of this series. 2019 is the year of Live Jesus here at the Sanctuary Covenant Church. The year of Live Jesus. And if we are to take our faith out of the clouds and onto the block, if we are to live in Jesus and live for Jesus and live like Jesus and live with Jesus, it will call for us to really know who Jesus is. It calls for us, dare I say it, to know the real Jesus. In this series, we're going to walk through the personality, the dynamic and multifaceted personality of Jesus. In this series today, in this message today, I'm going to talk about Jesus being playful. Next week, we'll talk about Jesus being intentionally fierce. We'll talk about Jesus being extravagantly generous. We'll talk about Jesus being disruptively honest. Jesus hurt people's feelings from time to time. We're going to talk about Jesus using a word that most of us would probably feel uncomfortable about. Jesus was scandalous. When it came to giving freedom to his people, Jesus was also cunning like a fox Jesus was true, and we're going to talk about the fact that our Lord and Savior Jesus is beautiful. And so here's our prayer together over the course of this series. It's a short one. Jesus, we ask you for you, for the real you. Day by day, day by day. Oh, dear Lord, three things I pray. To see you more clearly, to love you more dearly, to follow you more nearly day by day. To see Jesus more clearly, to love Jesus more dearly, and to follow Jesus more nearly. That's our prayer in this series. And as we get started today, I want to suggest to you that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, The Savior of the world was at times a playful person. That Jesus used humor 
and sarcasm and exaggeration and even humor, straight out humor, to teach us what it was to love and follow Jesus. When you imagine Jesus' personality, what comes to mind for you? Is Jesus always wise and compassionate? Is Jesus always serious? Is Jesus always in his head, thinking through the potential ways in which the religious leaders were going to try to trip him up, and so he had to stay one step ahead of them? Is Jesus withdrawn, aloof, standoffish? And how does this actually come about when Jesus is said to have always hung with drunkards? Have you ever been around a bunch of drunk people? I can't imagine Jesus sitting at the dinner at Matthew's house with all of Matthew's friends and all the people from the street who were called in to party with them. And I can't imagine Jesus sitting in a corner thinking through the law of Moses. I think Jesus knew how to have a good time. But we must give ourselves permission to imagine that Jesus was humorous, playful, and that Jesus might have even cracked the joke at one time. This is not a new concept, and this is not new uh, or not unique to this book, Beautiful Outlaw. In 1964, way back in 1964, a brother by the name of Elton Trueblood wrote a book called The Humor of Christ, where he suggests that we've truly missed the person of Jesus if we forsake his playful side. Here's what he said. There are numerous passages which are practically incomprehensible when regarded as somber prose, but which are opened up, which are seen more clearly when we become liberated from the assumption that Christ never joked. Once we realize that Christ was not always engaging in pious talk, we have made an enormous step on the road to understanding many of the passages of the Bible. True Blood said, and I agree with him, that Jesus often used humor for the sake of bringing truth to the light. And allowing us to see Jesus in that way, seeing Jesus as experiencing amusement, and dare even I say laughter and joy, can help us add precious meaning to some of God's most famous, Christ's most famous interaction. Here, here's one that we want to look at together today. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 13. It's known as the, the Jesus meets brothers on the road to Emmaus. It's the road to Emmaus experience there in Luke chapter 24. I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open it up to that. It will also appear on the screen. And there are three questions that I want to ask about this passage that I believe will help us to see that Jesus had a playful side. The first question is simply this. Did Jesus really not know? Did Jesus really not know? Luke chapter 24, Luke 24, beginning with verse 13. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the, one, the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days. Jesus responds, 
What things? It had been a very eventful few days in Jerusalem. In the course of three days, Jesus had celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. He had been betrayed, tried, and condemned. He had been beaten and nailed to a cross. He had been placed in a borrowed tomb. He had been raised from the dead. And the news was slowly making the rounds around the city. What kind of mood do you think Jesus would have been in on the morning of his resurrection? Jesus, Luke tells us, encounters two followers on the road to a small village called Emmaus, about seven miles away, it's believed. And the text says they were kept from seeing him for some reason. Luke says these brothers were downcast. They were, their faces were still. They were visibly troubled by the Lord's suffering and his death. Jesus approaches them, and he asks them a question. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? One of the brothers, Cleopas, wonders aloud in the ESV translation. That's the Edron Standard Version. Dude, what rock did you call, crawl from under? Are you the only one who doesn't know about the things that have happened? And Jesus responds, what things? Now, if, if this is serious, Jesus... If this is no humor, Jesus, if this is Jesus who's only allowed to be reserved and aloof and, and, and disconnected, this sounds just like a regular conversation. But if we can imagine for a moment that Jesus had some sense of humor, I, I want us to look at this passage again in a new way. Jesus had just fulfilled the purpose for which the Father had sent him into the world. He had defeated death, hell, the grave. He had torn the veil. He had won the victory. What kind of mood do you think Jesus would have been on in in a morning like this? I think Jesus was walking around singing uh, the anthem. You, you know the song. Hallelujah. I have won the victory. Hallelujah. I have won it all for me. Death could not hold me down. I think Jesus was in a great mood. If you have been resurrected from the dead, there's very little that you would be upset about this same day. Jesus encounters two men who are understandably troubled, who are deeply concerned because they had placed their hopes in a man and thought he to be the Messiah, and then they had seen him crucified. I understand why they're upset. But I also imagine Jesus would have been in an incredible mood on this morning. And he's playing with them when he asks them, what are you talking about? What things are you talking about? I haven't heard. I've been busy for the last few days. So to the question of, did Jesus really not know when he asked these questions? I say he absolutely knew. And this is a moment where I want you to consider that Jesus was being playful as he tried to engage with two brothers that he loved along the way. The second question for us, we find it in Luke 24, verses 19 through 27. That question is, was Jesus being insensitive? Luke says that Jesus pretends to be unaware of what's going on. 
I think he was playing, but these brothers, they miss it because they are so traumatized by what's been going on over the last few days. And so rather than picking up on his playfulness, they begin to earnestly explain to Jesus, this, this seemingly oblivious stranger, they still didn't know it was him, they begin to explain to him what's been going on. And Jesus quietly listens. But when they are finished, Jesus begins to offer what can seem on the surface as a chastisement. Here's, here's what Jesus said after these brothers have explained what has happened to Jesus of Nazareth. He, Jesus says to them in verse 25, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Listen, on the surface, serious Jesus. Serious Jesus often said hard things. If you only allow him to speak with a serious voice. But in this moment, Jesus is heard from brothers who desperately love him. And they're explaining why they are concerned and why they have, are troubled. And Jesus says to them, according to this translation, Jesus says to them, how foolish you are. How slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into glory? If we're only allowing Jesus to be serious and aloof and drawn apart and apart from the people, that can seem mean. But if we allow for the possibility that Jesus has some sense of humor, that Jesus used humor to connect to his people, I believe we can hear this question a different way. Jesus knew that these brothers were concerned. He also knew that they understood what the prophets had said. And this translation actually doesn't do a great job of explaining what I think Jesus was trying to do here. Here's, here's what I believe to be a better translation of what Jesus was doing if we allow Jesus to have some sort of personality. I believe Jesus was saying to them, brothers, don't be so heartbroken and blind that you miss what God is doing in this moment. The actual translation here in English doesn't actually get to the heart of what I believe Jesus was saying. He was saying to them, brothers, brothers, I, I know you're concerned. I know you're heartbroken, but don't forget what the prophets have already told us. I believe Jesus is not calling them foolish. I don't believe he's calling them hard-hearted. I believe he's calling their attention back to the word of God. And sometimes what can seem on the surface like someone being mean to you is actually somebody caring and saying, remember what God has already said. I believe that's what Jesus is doing here. And so to the question of was Jesus being insensitive? Absolutely not. I believe Jesus was using communication to remind people that what you've experienced here in these last few days are things that the Holy Spirit and the prophets have already told us about. And so was Jesus being insensitive? No. The third question, the final question before I take my seat, we find it in Luke 24, verses 28 through 35. I want us to read that part together because it revolves around a moment of epiphany. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. 
And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, he broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. Verse 32, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? My third and final question today is, won't good news change your testimony? Won't good news change your testimony? Jesus and his two traveling buddies were coming to the village of Emmaus. Jesus gives the impression, I believe playfully again, that he was planning to keep on walking. Jesus knew full well that the custom in that day was that if you were with someone at this hour of the night and they were a traveler, to offer them a place to stay. But they get to the village and Jesus says, oh, well, I guess I'll keep on moving, knowing that they were going to offer him a place to come and spend the night. And so they do just that. But something happens when they get into the house and sit down at the meal table. Jesus doesn't take the place of a guest. He sits at the head of the table. He grabs the bread. He breaks it. He blesses it. And In the moment that he breaks the bread, their eyes are opened to see who Jesus really is. He takes the bread, he breaks it, and their eyes are opened. He takes the bread, he breaks it, and their eyes are opened. Their story, just a few hours earlier, had been that their Lord, their Savior, had been killed. That the, the, the work of the church, that all they have given their life to was over. But in an instant, Jesus broke the bread. He opened their eyes and changed their story. Brothers and sisters, that's all good news. That's the gospel. That's the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Our story was one thing. But Jesus showed up in our lives, and in a moment, he began to change our story. songwriters have been trying to remind us of this for generations. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That's good news, changing our testimony. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry from the waters. He lifted me. Now safe am I. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Brothers and sisters, love has a name, and that name is Jesus. And I'm so glad in this season that we together get to experience Jesus, all of Jesus, the real Jesus, to see Jesus more clearly, to love Jesus more dearly, and to follow Jesus more nearly. And so, Jesus, we pray for you. We ask for you, the real you. 
I want to invite our worship team to come forward. I believe in this season that you and I have a very unique opportunity to see Jesus with fresh eyes, to know Jesus in a deeper and more real way. And I believe that if this is our year of living Jesus, if we are to serve this community with the hope of Jesus Christ, there is room for us to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is. And so I want to pray for us this morning that God would always be revealing more of God's self to us and that we would have an insatiable hunger for more, more, more. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. And thank you that you will go to any length to save us, to reveal yourself to us, to help us to see who you are. God, I pray that in the midst of busy lives and concerns that pull at our attention, that we would always make space for epiphany, for the ways in which you're showing up every single day, and often in places that we didn't know you were willing to show up. So be with us on our jobs. Be with us in the car line at our kids' schools. Be with us, God, as we spend time caring for loved ones and connecting to strangers, wherever we find ourselves throughout the week, God. Would you be with us? Lord, we love you. And we look forward to this opportunity over the next several weeks of learning more about you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.